What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Schmidt Duop and Mason Ginsburg, and this is all Pelicans all the time. Welcome to another episode of In the Know, again brought to you by betonline.ag for all your betting needs. Uh, speaking of betters, we have uh, a special guest, and I guess you can't really call him uh, a gambler, but he's made some interesting bets while he was on the social media sphere uh, back in the day. We have Michael McNamara, the one and only. Mac, what is up with you? How have you been enjoying your life in, in Utah, and how did you think? the all-star break panned out and the games good good going well here speaking of betting i got uh hannah ann at plus 350 a couple of weeks ago on the bachelor so yeah <laughs> uh, that's my go-to bet i'm i got my fingers crossed she made top three so getting excited about that all-star game i i liked i think uh maybe a little tweak i'd love to hear your guys idea it's actually something i don't think we talked about in the chat um but really enjoyed all of them. Just wish the game didn't end on a free throw. That said, I, I would have loved if AD would have missed both of them. <laughs> what was your fix to the free throw solution? I, I think it's got to be you got to make the last shot. I think it, basically what you do is once a team gets to one shot away, so I guess three points away from the rule, um, it basically does the same thing as – the fouls do um, in the final two minutes. So your first foul as a defense in that situation, okay, it's just ball out. Every foul after that um, would be would subtract one point from your score. So you couldn't just keep fouling and fouling. I mean, I guess you could, but you would just get farther and farther away from the target score. But that would be my my remedy. Yeah, that I, I guess that's at least like. It, you you still take that foul if you're gonna if you're preventing a sure bucket, but the, at, but with that in play, you're not. You, I mean, an in between, you're probably gonna say, "I'll I'll just take my chances here." So yeah, I like that. Would you guys want to apply the Elam ending to regular season games, not to close the game, but for overtime? So let's say a game is tied, goes to overtime instead of double, triple, quadruple overtime. It's first to I don't know, whatever ten, fifteen. I don't 
I don't think so. I mean, that's a, it, I, I think the amount of times we're going to these second, third, fourth overtimes is so rare in the first place. And then, you know what, there were a few times it happens. I think it's so much fun that I'm, I'm cool with it. I don't, I, I don't think I would change the overtime structure. Yeah. I think maybe if you talk about the second or third overtime, I could be good with that. Uh, the first one, I'd still like it to be timed. But, man, it, it was so fun. Like, I'm watching Hawks Heat right now, and it's just going to become a foul contest, and these final couple minutes, seconds are going to take forever. And, man, that All-Star game was, you know, it took a long time, but it was all action long time. So I, I might be able to go for it. Maybe the maybe you start off with if the game gets to a third overtime, it's Elam ending, and then maybe we bring it back to – a second if it works well how much do you think nick nurse was looking at his bench and wishing fred van vliet was the guy there instead of kemba walker to close that game he would have had the onions to make those shots he definitely wouldn't have dribbled it off his foot in transition um but yeah i mean i, I thought what was interesting about that is like coaches want their players to rest. like i don't know how you guys felt I was so happy that Ingram got the least amount of minutes in that game. But here Nick Nurse was playing his guys, you know, that entire fourth quarter, which I think somebody said in real time that final quarter or whatever lasted like 44 minutes. Yeah. Real act. So, you know, good on him. Like what and what's going on with with this whole Giannis Harden beef? I, I'm I'm trying to figure this out, and, and does, does oh. it really date back to the MVP stuff from a couple of years ago or last year? I think year? so. Harden took a bunch of cheap shots of like, oh, well, the media narrative isn't isn't with me, and and they'll they will never reward whatever I do. Blah 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 blah. blah. He he whined a ton. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Whenever Giannis got it, and Giannis was like, whatever, bro. <laughs> and uh, I think he's Giannis has been taking shots ever since. It's been hilarious. <laughs> I've loved it. Anywho, speaking of Brendan Ingram, he was a little bit a topic of conversation today on Pell's social media and on internet forums. There was an ESPN article put out where random executives were interviewed about what's going to happen in in free agency. And one of the, I guess, perhaps controversial statements made was some execs, I guess, I think technically it said most execs feel Ingram isn't worth a max contract, but he's probably going to get one. And and another exec argued, well, if you're New Orleans, why would you even let it get to free agency? Just get it over with, get him the max. So I think all of us are on the same page that there is probably no reality in which Brandon Ingram isn't a max contract player on the Pelicans this summer. Um, I guess before I move on to the topic, are we in agreement there? Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I mean, even the the only way that's not the case is with the given how the free agent market played out. I mean, I think it was uh, or did not free agent market given how the the trade deadline played out. Uh, Danny, I think it was Danny Larue had a pretty good article about how uh, on the athletic how the moves that happened at the deadline took away even more, you know, free cap space from from teams and and. Uh, depresses the market even further but I still don't think the Pelicans let it get that far yeah I mean I I think it's like a the conversation always becomes are we talking about worth or are we talking about deserve and like 
you know, what a guy could get on the market versus if we just put all the guys in a bucket and started ranking them and then, you know, declining values along the way, he'll definitely get a max. I mean, even if there's fewer teams now, imagine if you made Brandon Ingram an unrestricted free agent. Like, you would be able to find eight, nine, ten teams that could find a way to get to max money if they were guaranteed and they knew they were going to be able to get him. And teams would do that. So, you know, worth, yeah, he's worth it because he'll get it. I think the debate always becomes the deserve part of it. Exactly. And, and so, right, Atlanta is sitting on essentially uh, the ability to make two max contract slots if they wanted to, and they would 100% overpay a guy like Ingram. And I don't even know if it's an overpay because I guess that's, that's his market, right? So they would, they would 100% go after a guy like Ingram to add talent to its team that Trey Young has that they desperately need, and they don't want to be in the bottom of the East anymore. And then New York also has a max slot, and we all know – New York being the big market that it is, they have wanted to make big splashy moves and have struck out and potentially they could see this as an opportunity to add a, an all-star in New York. And maybe if they draft LaMelo ball, like that's another way back to relevancy for New York. So I, I agree. He is going to get a max. I guess we can turn the conversation to, is he worth a maximum contract? And I think there are some very fair questions to ask, regarding his play going forward I think at age 22 he's shown that he's he can be a fantastic scorer uh, a fairly reliable shooter so far this season Uh, he's been reliable from the line he's made his open catch and shoots Uh, he has a lot of room to improve when it comes to playing without the ball and he has a lot of room to improve on the defensive end of the floor given what you have seen I guess I'll ask Mac first given what you have seen is he going to be uh, worth the max over the duration? I guess let's say he gets a four-year deal. Is he going to outproduce or match the production value of that contract? I mean, and again, that's that's another tough one. So, like, I think he'll outperform um, Jamal Murray. So if you base it off of, you know, is he worth this amount of money? Well, let's look at other guys around the league who make that money. And, um, you know, I think he'll outperform a guy like that. I, I think what sold me on Ingram is just the way guys always talk about him and his love for back basketball almost singularly. I can't imagine a situation in which the money corrupts him, um, or ego really gets in the way or, or kind of all these other things that, um, you know, you can't foresee. If you're talking about just do you expect him to continue to evolve maybe incrementally as a basketball player, I think he does 95 times out of 100. And if you look at it that way and say, okay, the second we sign him – Is he a positive, neutral, or negative value? I think if the Pelicans sign him and he's the exact same player for the first six months until he could be traded, you would be able to trade him for more than just expirings. You would be able to get positive assets. And I think that's the way I would look at it. And in that way, I would say, yes, he will bring the value of of a max contract. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think, um, first of all, and I, I, I know this is a, not the best way to look at it, but if you look at the history of this Pelicans franchise, they've never had a guy like Ingram. I mean, in, in, what, Jamal Mashburn? Like, is that the last guy? And I'm not, I don't really think Page gets you that. Like, to what Ingram can, theoretically can be if he improves, it, even if he improves, like you said, Mac, marginally, I think, I think it's a guy uh, uh, you want to invest in, given how that, that tends to be such a scarce resource, a, a good wing with size who can really um, get, just get you buckets. And I, I, I also like what I've seen from him throughout the course of the year in terms of uh, his ability to really create. Um, I think you've seen the, the assist numbers have ticked up marginally throughout the year, but I think he's just been able to really get more guys involved um, and, and, and do more things besides uh, get, get baskets for himself. Obviously, I, 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 I do agree with Schmidt around the, the off-ball uh, struggles, relatively speaking. And there are, there are certainly still some questions with him and Zion, just given the small sample size we've seen so far. Not that I'm really that concerned about the fit with those two. So, I mean, I, I, I think there are more ways it goes right than goes wrong, um, but that doesn't mean it's totally risk-free. I mean, I, the, I, I, still, I still definitely think he's, he'll, he'll provide positive value for that contract. Yeah, I don't think there is anything we have seen right now that would sway the Pelicans from giving him a max. So what I'm trying to say is, even if he has concerns regarding maybe his off-ball game or his defense, they aren't enough to scare the Pelicans away from committing to him long-term and figuring out what his fit is going to be with with Zion going forward. And I think ultimately what team building around this team is going to become is, is figuring out pieces that work with those two guys and trying to see what maximizes that duo. And frankly, it may just be a situation where they get rid of all the people who really need the ball and put the ball in Ingram's hand and Zion's hand on a much higher basis than they already do. And they just kind of center around the fact that these two are going to be our, our primary initiators. We just need low usage role players and a few people, you know, that can shoot and create on a secondary level to, to get the job done. But these guys are, are going to lift our offense. Maybe that ends up being the team building plan. But I think that question leads pretty nicely into some of the topics explored by Mac in a recent article he wrote, it's 10 things I think I think at the all-star break. If you guys haven't checked it out, it's published on the website. So make sure you do. But one of the questions that Mac raises is Lonzo can work, Drew can work, but not both. And Mac, do you want to go into that a particular point in your article and what you see happening with those guys and how it relates to how Zion and Ingram fit in the future? Yeah. I mean, it goes in with the assumption that Zion and Ingram are the core. And when that becomes the case, now you've got to look at kind of the parts that support it. And I could see a world in which Drew is a third piece I know people act like he's 90 years old and, and on the way out and there's no way he's going to be able to, to hold on and be a part of this team when they're contenders. I, I don't see it that way. I, I know Zion is 19, but I think when we talked on the podcast, when we got the number one pick, 
I said that Zion is going to come into the league as third or fourth year Giannis. So I see him as being able to be a guy who could be on a contending team in his third year, which would put Drew at what, 31, 32, basically the same age that Jimmy Butler is now. And it's not like Jimmy Butler has one foot out the door. Um, so I, I could see either one of those guys. I can't see both. And it's just because both of the guys just seem to have way too high of a variance. And the stats play this out as, as much as the eye test does where, um, you know, the, the turnovers that those guys could have um, on a given night combined with the bad free throw shooting combined with the erratic three-point shooting there's just I, – I don't think any Pelicans fan with confidence could go into any game with either of those guys and say, I know what I'm going to get out of Drew tonight or I know what I'm going to get out of Lonzo, at least on the offensive end. Um, and, you know, they, they are both higher usage guys or at least guys that are going to be at their best when they have the ball in their hands. They're not going to just be P.J. Tucker sitting in the corner. So – I think that, you know, you're going to have to choose one of them um, and and try to make it work with one of those guys. I just can't see kind of all the compound problems they bring, a lot of which also overlaps with the weaknesses of Zion, namely the shooting, the free throw shooting, the outside shooting. I just can't see a scenario in which this is a contending team Um, you know, we're fighting for the playoffs right now, but I'm talking about getting to a point when you're a true, true contender and that's another level. I just can't see both of them here for that. And that's before you even get into the contract issues. So what I want to ask you, and this goes for both of them, do they become more consistent or is there a lower variance to their game when you remove a guy like Derek Favors from the equation who kind of just clogs for them when it comes to sitting in in the lane. Cause when you have both favors and Zion in there, the paint's not going to be open. And in two favors, isn't really the best pick and roll partner either. Um, he's not very quick or explosive. doesn't really have much vertical spacing. He's, he's a fine decision maker in the short role, but that might be his best attribute in the pick and roll. So like if you were to replace favors with a guy who either a is, is a much better pick and roll partner or B is just a, a better floor spacer and opens up the lane for these guys and make some of the, the decision making easier for them and the ability to get to certain spots and make those decisions easier for them. Does that um, reduce the variance of their play? Because we've seen drew play at pretty consistent level, pretty high levels uh, and sustain it for longer stretches. But this this season, it's just been, you know, you flip a coin and you're, you're not exactly sure what you're getting out of him. But, you know, when, when they were pushing for the playoffs after Boogie went down, that back half of the season, Drew was essentially all NBA level. Um, and, and he carried that into the playoffs where he performed extremely well, not only against Portland, which was a series he was known for, but um, against a really stacked Warriors team as well. I mean, even in the elimination game, he had a triple-double. My opinion is no, that wouldn't have I, – I personally think Drew plays 
his worst when he has the most talent around him. And it's because his brain gets in the way. I think, you know, when he has that much talent around him, he feels guilty kind of being um, the, the volume scorer, high usage guy that he was when Boogie was out. Um, Lonzo, I just can't answer. Lonzo is the most perplexing player I've ever watched. I've never seen somebody who has the ability to throw three-quarter court alley-oops on a dime and then dribble the ball, not even off his foot, just completely lose it on the way to the basket um, with nobody around him. The unforced error turnovers that he has are like something you would see from a middle schooler, and then he'll have passes that maybe two guys in the NBA can make. And I know you guys make a lot of jokes about his stand, but like I could understand why he has stands because they probably just don't watch all of the perplexing things, and then they see the plays that only two guys in the league can make and think he's the greatest ever. But I don't think the cons- inconsistency – could be removed because it's it's unlike any high and low of from a player I've I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm I, I agree much more about Lonzo and the inc- inconsistency. Not just saying that he's he's not a fit, but the fact that he's got these highs and lows. And I'm I, I really want to hear more about the comment surrounding the Drew comment that he is at his best with the least amount of talent around him. Cause I, I don't see that. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think about the times when Drew's been great and it's not necessarily the weakest surrounding uh, parts. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I think as this team continues to grow with Ingram and Zion, that takes pressure off of Drew. And I, I, I see that, the, the variance that we've seen from him this year kind of stabilizing a little bit. So I'm, I guess I'm not there uh, as far as what to expect from Drew as this team continues to develop. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you see there. And, and what do you think he, like, if you think of a couple of times when he played his best, what times were those? End of last year for sure, right? Yeah. And then – like Schmidt said, when Boogie went down, and I know we got Miritich, but I think uh, what a lot of people forget, I, I, I wanted to throw that in. <laughs> a lot of people forget, <laughs> Nico was terrible in the regular season um, before that playoff run. And it was basically AD and Drew just here. And, and, and I maybe. No, it was until he shaved his beard. Come on, Mac. <laughs> um, so it, and like I, I maybe it's not least talent as much as clearly defined roles. Yeah. And with AD, he was the clearly defined number two and and actually number one creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with when they had nobody last year, he was the clear number one. And he's just able to shut off his brain and go play basketball. Now you look up and it's you know I'm sure Gentry's telling him. We know Gentry's telling these guys we're not going multiple possessions without feeding Zion because we saw how mad Gentry got when they didn't do it against the Rockets. So got to feed Zion. Okay. Ingram's an all-star got to boost up his confidence. Got to make sure Lonzo gets shot. Like I, I don't think that is 
Drew at his best. I think he's at his best when he shuts his brain off. And I know a lot of people have made the suggestion of Drew as a sixth man, and that's kind of laughable given his Wait, talent. Wait, what? I've, I haven't seen that. That's, that's <laughs> you haven't seen that? No. Mason, you, you don't talk to the right Lonzo stands. <laughs> I think I've needed enough of them at this point, but fair enough. I, I, it doesn't know. I, I know it is kind of crazy for this team. In three years, whether it's on this team or another team, Drew is going to be a fantastic sixth man, and he's going to be the sure go-to guy of that unit. I mean, obviously, you could figure some of this out with correct staggering, but I wouldn't be surprised if we could split Drew's lineup data that you know a, a lot of his best efficiency will happen with kind of staggered units and less talent on the floor. Well, I, I kind of want to push back on that a little bit. I think when when Boogie was here, he had a terrible start to the season where everyone was questioning his contract and wondering if it was he was actually worth it. But then after Rondo came back in in the middle of November, and then from then on until January, uh, he was averaging about twenty one a game, and his scoring average for the season was around twenty a game. But he had a good three months. And then in the early January, all three of AD Boogie and Drew were clicking together. And that's when you were like, holy shit, this team could be a real contender. You know, you saw the real ceiling of that team. So I think it took him a while to reach that level of adjustment and that, and that level of confidence. And and then when Boogie went down, you're right. I I do think his his role was simplified. And and don't forget, this is the, the, I think the best version of this team came when Rondo was off the floor too. I mean, and it was, I remember that because the boogie and Rondo thing just could never work together. And so well, what weird. they would do is, is they would stagger these lineups and drew, like Max said, drew would end up with r- running like an all bench unit because they didn't have a, a backup point guard. I mean, I think what that was the year they were trying out Jameer Nelson, right? And, and so when, when Rondo was off the floor and Drew was the sole guy like running it, I think, especially off the bench, it was like, all right, Drew, just, just go score, go do your thing. And I think I remember looking at those stats, Drew's usage in those, in those minutes spiked to like 30 something that of like a Westbrookian lead guard. And he was just, just putting up points. And then when Boogie and AD came back on the floor, like that usage would plummet. And maybe that's something that would, that has to happen here and now but the way they're staggering is they're letting zion be the guy who runs who gets that first hit of the all bench crew where his usage is super boosted in the first uh minutes of the second quarter and the first minutes of the fourth quarter instead of drew being that guy and that's all good for you know 43 minutes of the game and i'm sure we can figure out staggering do you guys feel like this is a i mean when you're talking about the best of the best, you're, you're talking about playing the best teams in the league, and it's going to come down to those final five minutes. And we've seen what happens when we go against a team like the Thunder that don't have, you know, nearly the amount of talent that the Pelicans have, in my opinion, but they have very clearly defined roles, and they out-execute us and out-execute the rest of the league, quite frankly, almost every single time. Yeah, I mean, I guess it helps having one of the best point guards of all time <laughs> running running that. But I, I agree. I think my the where I side with Drew is even in those last few minutes, there are very few defenders in the league where I would want 
that I know and feel comfortable putting on a lead guard and is capable of generating a stop at, at a high frequency. Obviously he's going to get burned at times like Derek Rose burned him this year. Um, but you know, countless times they've just thrown Drew on the guy at the end and they're like, all right, dude, just make something happen. And he, and he comes up with a clutch stop or clutch steal. And how do we reconcile that aspect of his game, which travels even on his off days on offense with the fact that he, he turns into a pumpkin at the end of games offensively. And what, and again, like, if there's, if it's one of Drew Alonzo, I think you mentioned this in your article as well. If you move Drew for greater depth and more assets and all that, that's great. But you are losing the guy that you are putting on the opponent's best offensive threat, regardless of position every single night. And the Pelicans simply just do not have a stopper on the roster. I know people are like, well, Josh Hart is playing really well. And, and part of why Josh Hart is playing really well is he can bring that level of energy and burst from the bench, it's different when you're playing 36 minutes a night and you're guarding James Harden every single possession or you're guarding Russell Westbrook every single possession. And and I haven't seen guys like Drew. I mean, I think there's like two or three guys that I can count. Marcus Smart is is one of them who's just relentless no, no matter what. Um, there's there's a couple guys on Toronto that, that might fit the bill. Kawhi, when he was with the Spurs, kind of fit the bill but there's just very few guys who do that so where where do you fill in this defensive gap that this team is going to have and then the second part of that is, is favors you, you get rid of favors who's quote-unquote a defensive big you were suddenly left with questionable defenders at multiple positions in your starting lineup yeah I don't think it would be something that you'd solve next year regardless I guess I would just ask you know, you're basically talking about, I think we agree that in our ideal future, three years from now, end of game, we're talking about an Ingram Zion pick and roll probably, right? Is our bread and butter play? Something like that. Something involving those two guys. Yeah. Right. And on e- on either side, like Zion could be the the ball handler. So then you're talking about Lonzo and Drew in the corner. Like you're basically making them – glorified Marcus Smarts or um, I don't know, an Austin Rivers. I'm trying to think of guys from other teams, which are all fine and you need guys like that. What do we think Drew's next contract is going to be? And what do we think Lonzo's next contract is going to be? That's a fun question. Who do you think? So they are both eligible for a new contract at the same, in, in the same year. Who nets more annual money? And who nets more money in totality over the duration of the contract? What would be your guess, Mason? Man, um, I think Drew gets more money. Um, so he's what? He's going to be 31 at that time, going to 32? Yeah, yeah I, I think um, I, I think Lonzo's got to show more between now and his next contract to make me – a lot more to make me change my mind there. Like, I, I – I, I, I know, I know what Mac's going to say, and it's going to come back to people paying for his potential because of where he was drafted. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's Drew who gets more money because he can. He'll still be at a point in his career where you're paying for the front end of the contract, and if and if the last year of the deal is going to, you're going to take a hit, then so be it. 
Um, I, and I still think, you know, to the point made earlier, he'd be, he be a great, he'd still be super valuable uh, off the bench uh, on both ends of the floor uh, enough again to give him a, a decent, decently sized contract. So, I mean, I, that said, I don't know, I don't know which, I still don't know which player concerns me more to, to give that type of money to, uh, or to give the, his next contract to. But I, I think, I think Drew's the, the guy who gets more money. Yeah, I would guess that Drew will get somewhere four years, 110 to 120 million on his next contract, and Lonzo will get something in the four for between 80 and 95. So, but either way, I'm guessing that they're going to be making close to $50 million a year for most of those contracts. And what we're basically talking about them as is glorified Marcus Smarts. And I agree, you got to have one of them. I just don't see how you have a, a sustainable roster with two Marcus Smarts making $50 million combined. So, Yeah, that's, that's tough for me. And I'll be honest, that price tag on Lonzo, 20 mil plus a year, scares me. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the going rate when you look at starting point guards in the league that aren't on their rookie contracts. Yeah, people Ru- can't sit there and tell me that Lonzo's not going to get paid. And then I go, okay, would you trade him straight up for Rubio? Heck no, I wouldn't. Well, Rubio's making $19 million, So if you're saying he's better than that guy, what do you think – Lonzo's going to make in his next contract. I mean, t- Terry, Terry Rozier, I think, made $19 million this summer. Exactly. Which was a, immediately panned by everyone, though. Like, yeah, but he wasn't and, a former number two pick, and he hadn't really shown, you know, like I said, that the highs of Lonzo are like elite, elite highs. So, I, I don't know. What, what would it take for, from Ingram over the next one – next year plus – to make you think that maybe you don't need a, a pure point type guy like Lonzo. Even I don't even know if you can consider him a pure point because in the half court versus transition, that's two different guys you're talking about. But like, what what would it take for you to not feel like you need a traditional point guard on this roster uh, to see from Ingram? Is it more Ingram or is it more Zion? I feel yes. like that's, that can I guess apply it's to both. either. Yeah, I think it does. I, I, it, for me, it would take me seeing Ingram being able to turn the corner on a pick and roll. Like, I think his game is so deliberate and so measured and in some ways, like, so slow. I think a pick and roll a ball handler, like, you've got to be able to turn that corner either with great speed or power. Like, Kawhi doesn't do it with speed, but he is so strong that when he gets that shoulder on you and he gets a half step on you, he might as well be the fastest point guard in the world because you're not getting back in front of him. Ingram's never going to have the power. So to me, I need to be able to see him turn that corner on a pick and roll with some kind of explosion quickness and you know a lower handle so it doesn't get poked. Do you think he slows the game down or is deliberate with it because it allows him a chance to read what is going on with the defense? He's buying himself some time, kind of like you know when you ask someone a question and they'll repeat it back to you, but really they are buying themselves some time to think of an answer. My guess is that he has so many things in his bag 
that, yeah, he's trying to figure out exactly how he's going to score on that one. And, and that's why I always kind of like the guys who just do one or two things exceptionally well and go to it over and over again. Like I could tell you every time the Celtics needed a basket, exactly what Paul Pierce was going to do. We all know exactly what Chris Paul is going to do when he needs a bucket in clutch time. I think the hard thing for Ingram is he almost has too much in the bag and his ability to score from all three levels in different ways that, yeah, I think he's thinking about what he's going to do and, and kind of buying himself time. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's super interesting. And one of the things I know that, that, um, you know, when I've, when I've seen stuff from, uh, you know, Lake, Lakers bloggers or, or media folks that, that talk about the ways in which Ingram has improved. I think one of them, one of the things that called out is his handles and how his, you know, whether he's, he's dribbling closer to the floor and it, and it's keeping it's it's allowing him to be a little bit quicker it's allowing him to take care of the ball better when he's going when he's going off the dribble to get into the rim and so i'm you know i'm curious can like like you said Matt, can he take an, then another step and and really convince me convince us convince the pelicans that he can be that type of guy and so i, I wonder if that's something that comes this offseason so since he really didn't get much of an offseason to, to work on his game with uh with the blood clot issue uh, what what happens this summer and what does he come back with next year I think it's gonna be very interesting but to my point let's say the Pelicans had two crappy guards same exact team we have two crappy guards let's say we have Jameer Nelson and who Ian Clark don't <laughs> you think that Ingram oh would have already I know right but don't you think Ingram would have already ran 500 more pick and rolls than he has this season. Yeah. Like this is, this is the part where people always want more, more, more talent, but it gets in the way. Like you don't just add, it's taking away sometimes too. And maybe Ingram works on it this summer. You really think he's going to get a ton of pick and roll opportunities. If, if Drew and Lonzo are both on the car, like you've got to feed all these people. Well, and- you don't have to worry about it with Lonzo. He won't run a pick and roll. <laughs> He'll have the ball. Up there. He'll have the ball to stop somebody else from running a pick and roll. But yeah, I, I think they've got to subtract some talent in order to get the most out of the big talent that they do have. Yeah, Ian Clark, I think Flying Tigers, the Chinese <laughs> Basketball Association, in case anyone was curious, because I did not know that. Yeah, poor man didn't make it back in the league. He had a great run with the Warriors, won a ring, and uh, had, some, had some moments with the Pelicans where we thought he could maybe be a thing and no longer in the league. You know, I wrote an article after that first year with Ian Clark talking about like what he could evolve into. And you know who the the stat comparison was between his second half of that year once Boogie went down in the league? Fred Van Vliet. Oh, my God. (laughs) It was like mirror image, same exact number. I'm like, he could be our Fred Van Vliet. Oh, God. If only. If only stats always held up. There's only 28, so the dream is not dead. (laughs) But – Going back to maybe removing talent, I think the way to look at that is not necessarily a reduction 
in talent. It's a reduction maybe in scoring talent and kind of reshaping, redistributing it elsewhere in areas where the Pelicans need help. Namely, I keep asking for this defensive wing stopper that, that the Pelicans don't have. Um, it could be redistributed to a big that is more talented than favors, maybe is equally low usage, but can do a little bit more with the ball, can can space a little, maybe pass a little better, just has a different skill set that opens and unlocks the rest of the team's game. And And so... I do think there is a roster balancing that needs to happen. And you touch, you touch on favors. We've talked about favors a lot. And I think most recently we talked about him in the context that he's probably not going to get a lot of money. This, this free agency, there's better bigs than him out there. The market is really dry and it's entirely possible that his role within this team is going to be reduced going forward. Um, You argue that Melly and not Hayes is probably going to be the person that gets most of those minutes initially. And then, and then you argue that if you lined up favors across from all the other bigs that are available this, this off season, and you have the ability to pick one, you know, favors might be the last person you pick. Why, why do you feel that way about him? Um, so for me, and again, like sometimes I feel crazy. First of all, I'm not a, anti-stats guy I am a math teacher at heart that taught AP stats I love stats Um, I just think that some of them are a little authentic and I I see all these stats thrown around of what the units per 100 is and you know all this stuff with favors Um, first of all I do think favors is a huge upgrade over Jaleel Okafor and 19 year old Jackson Hayes so it's not surprising at all that the Pelicans record was better with him than with those other guys trying to play center. But, you know, if, if that unit was that good, Gentry would be closing games with it, wouldn't he? And honestly, when they do in, in critical moments go to that unit, it usually gets beat down by good teams and or Gentry doesn't go to it. And it's just because of really on on both ends. I knew that on the offensive end, Favors was going to hurt some things with spacing. And you really, I want people to watch the next game um, or the next couple games this week. Watch how hard perimeter players overplay um, our guards and our wings when Favors on the court because they know they could just funnel it to the, the big men in the paint. So that hurts. But what I never anticipated was how terrible favors would be as a rim protector. And I know you have some of the stats that'll back that up. I'm just watching with my eyes and guys have no fear at all going at him. And the resistance he offers is minimal at best. So I'm fine dealing without the spacing offensively if I get a rim protector. And then conversely, if I could get somebody that could help with the spacing, I know I'm not going to find somebody who's much worse as a rim protector. So, you know, when I look at all the guys and Aaron Baines and Marcus Saul, like every one of those guys, I go, okay, they're going to improve on one of the ends. And honestly, they're not going to take away much, if anything, on the other. So go, you know, like you said, if we had Aaron Baines on this team, 
I would bet my life that nobody would be going, oh man, can't wait to get rid of Baines this summer. We should go after favors. And that's how people have to think about change. They can't think about it in a transitional, in a, in a traditional way. Honestly, if we had Baines or Gasol or some of the other guys who I think could be had for around the MLE, there is no chance in hell that you would be saying, got to get rid of that guy and target Derek Favors this summer. Yeah, I mean, it took me a little while to reach the conclusion where you got to with Favors because I was operating under two assumptions. My first assumption was, holy crap, these bigs that we're playing are terrible. Favors really is indispensable. I don't really see a future... Uh, in the short term where he's not a major part of the rotation and lineup. And, and two, I'm like, well, if he's going to be a major part of the lineup, then we're going to have spacing issues by default, particularly when Zion comes back. So we can't complicate that by making a three headed monster and putting Lonzo also on the court. And so I was like, well, bench Lonzo, that's, that's the solution. And you, you start JJ and you figure it out because the idea of, replacing favors or benching favors or or whatever i was like well that that wasn't even entertained because he's he's favors he's your he's your best rebounder he's your most disciplined big whatever i am now of the opposite thought where you can mitigate the spacing issues that lonzo gives you because he does things with the ball he'll make his his catch and shoot threes at a decently acceptable rate this year he he can pass the ball. He can occasionally drive. It's easier to mask perimeter spacing issues than it is a big spacing issues because he literally gives you nothing outside of the rim, nothing at all. And so what the spacing issues that I was attributing to Lonzo really belong to favors. And, and I think you're right about the, the rim protection here because I think people will notice like, Oh, well he had a really good play here, a really good play there. Well, I think you mentioned it in our group chat where over the course of a 200 possession game, everyone's bound to have like three or four possessions where they look really good. And what really hammered the point home for me was that Houston game. And he was favors was plus 11, that Houston game. Alvin chose not to close the game with him. And people were so upset. They're like, we should have ran our offense through favors and, and we should have used him more in the fourth quarter. He was a plus 11 where literally when I was watching the game, everything screamed, this guy did not belong on the floor <laughs> of that game. And, and that next night, it was a two nights later, the Rockets playing P.J. Tucker at center took down the Lakers and Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And if they can do that to that team, what place does Derek Favors have on the court? And, and that was the biggest eye-opener for me regarding Favors. I think that, but the, the, uh, that, that's like a broader question though, about what any big, what value any big has on the floor against a team like the Rockets and what they're, what they're doing right now by itself is really, really interesting. But I think it begs a kind of the broader question. Uh, And I know, I know we're, I know we've talked a little bit about the Zion's future at the four versus the five. And uh, you know, and I think we also mentioned how the team is, going to be built around Zion and uh and Ingram but you know what's the what's the long-term view on those two guys as far as where their 
where they're playing the majority of their minutes. Is it is Ingram Zion the four or five? Is Ingram Zion the three five? What's you know what what do you what do you see working best for for those two in terms of you know where where they slot in? Um, and maybe not just closing, but just overall what, where they play the majority of their minutes when and you know as this team continues to grow together. Man, I think that's I think that's so tough. And it's mostly because I'm trying to think of one, what this league will look like in four or five years. Like one of my things in this article, I don't think we'll touch on, but I'd love people to read and and give you guys feedback on Twitter is the three point revolution. And like, if it keeps going this way, or maybe there's something unforeseen that, that changes. um, I think that makes it impossible but even if the league stays just like this, I'm looking at the Western Conference and I'm seeing Porzingis. I'm seeing Anthony Davis um, like the, are, are going to be part of teams that are probably here as the Pelicans start to become contenders. I'm seeing Jokic. Like, I, I, it's hard for me to envision Zion being a heavy guy at the five or even a guy that that finishes at the five. I mean, I know he would create uh, an advantage on the other end, especially if he could really improve his shooting. But I don't know when you think about the Western conference and specifically those three guys that I mentioned, even go bear. Like, do you guys see Zion finishing at five against guys of that caliber in playoff games? Yes, I do. But the important caveat is we need our own PJ Tucker. I want a guy who is a multi-position guy for for the bigs. I, obviously, I want a point of attack stopper for for the guards and on all of that. But I want a guy like PJ Tucker. And I think you were talking about Tad Young earlier in the year. Someone that will defend your your big wings and other bigs and just allows. Zion and Ingram to not take on the responsibility of the best opposing player in the front court. I think if you find that guy, you can make it happen. And so, like, and so it, it doesn't become the question of, of if Zion and Ingram are the four and five is, is can you play small with another hybrid forward on the court that will eat up most of that defensive responsibility. So if it's not someone like that's strong, like PJ Tucker that can handle some of those guys in the, in, in the post, and then it's someone who at least provides a secondary or, or a somewhat high level of rim protection from that other forward position. And then they have like wing offensive skills where they could at least shoot and put the ball on the deck. Yes. So, I think you know the perfect version of this guy would would be would be Draymond. You know, if you if you have your Draymond, everything is easier. But Draymonds don't grow on trees because he is a one of a kind defender that is probably going to go down as one of the best defenders in history. With with based on what he was able to do. But yeah, if they can find a guy that can, you know, even even a Paul Millsap, he's old now. But, you know, what, what Paul Millsap was in Atlanta, what he ha- kind of has been in Denver. He's studied, like, Jokic isn't fantastic uh, as, as a defensive player, especially not in space. But Millsap provides enough help uh, as a secondary guy 
that to where he can stabilize that defensive unit. And so what will probably end up happening is if in those lineups, they're probably going to switch a lot of those matchups, but the matchup I wouldn't want to switch is if that guy was guarding one of those primary bigs, like, like AD or Gobert. Like I'm not afraid of Gobert um, going forward. Um, just, I just think guys like him can only damage you so much. Uh, so the Gobert's and Capella's who's not in this conference anymore and Steven Adams, not too afraid of them. Uh, when it comes to closing the game, it, it's going to be your, your ADs and your Carl Anthony Towns. And, and the bet has to be is these guys can't score enough uh, efficiently enough uh, through post-ups to where they can hurt me and where our team defense is going to be good enough to prevent them from damaging us in, in the pick and roll. Can, can Jax get to that level? Uh, you know, you talked a little bit about rim protection and kind of the skill set that this team needs in the front court to kind of go along with uh, Zion and Ingram. I mean, what's, what are the, what are the odds you can get, get to where you, we would need him as a rim protector to fit in uh, and, and make you not feel like you have to go out. And, and I guess it's more of a long-term question because I know he's still a kid, but um, you know, can't, Have you seen enough from Jax to think that he can get, you can get there with him? He's such a wild card to me because I could see a world where he picks up an immense set of skills and he can put the ball on the floor and he develops a face-up game. I can see a world where he just turns into Serge Ibaka light. I can also see a world where he's JaVale McGee 2.0. He's a, he's a total wild card to me. And, and, I think, again, it's like Lonzo where you see flashes where you're like, holy crap, this guy is really good. He's clearly very intelligent. He pays attention. Um, he's picked up a lot of things, especially since Summer League. He's gotten better. But there's so much that he just doesn't know and isn't good at. And it's difficult for me to bank on when he's going to get good at those things, if he will. So I, I, I feel more confident in him um, as being a regular 20, 25-minute guy as he gets stronger but can he be the guy you close games with that? That's such a hard question for me. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. The reason why it's hard for me to totally lead in, lean into the Ingram Zion four five thing is because normally when teams go smaller, it's because they're going to say, okay, we're going to beat you with three. You know, we're going to score three every time you score two and we're going to win with the math, but really the Pelicans are going smaller to take more two, like Zion is a highly efficient two point shooter. I know Ingram makes threes, but it's not like he's a volume guy like Harden. Like he really, his bread and butter is the mid range. <coughs> um, you know, Lonzo and Drew, as we've discussed, are not above average three point shooters. So it's like you're fighting to go small to take yeah. more twos. That's the part with me that makes it um but even the warriors led the league in paint scoring and scoring at the rim and and while everyone talked about well they're this fantastic three-point shooting team and they were but all of that led to them being one of the most deadly teams at the rim right because people respected them from 35 feet out but we won't have that to open the paint right so it's just again i'm thinking about the like you see what it takes to win a championship and i mean like you have to be the best of 30 and I, I don't know. My gut still says that there'll be somebody bigger than Ingram and, and Zion to finish games. This Schmidt, it's time. Is- it's time, man. You haven't said his name yet. 
Kenrich Williams? No. <laughs> Come on. Brad, big. He's not bigger than Zion and Inger. Why would I mention Bradley Beal as the three, four guy that's going to close out games for us? We were. Why, why we, would it be time? Mac was referencing the Warriors and how they created that space with guys who could bomb from thirty-five feet, and I was just waiting for waiting for your um, boy to come up. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, I would love. I think. I think the next evolution in Zion's game or the evolution i'll take the team with zion to the next level is a guy that can bomb from 30 feet is a guy that's a threat to pull up the second you set a screen and if you're not sending two at him if you're not sending that big up to meet him at that point of the screen then he's gonna fire and he can he can drain those at a 38 to 40 percent clip if you had that guy and every time zion setting screens and and you you were there was any situation where a defense had to pick like, Shh, do we send blitz at this guy? And in the moment they had to pick that it's, it's game over. So if you're able to get a guy like Damian Lillard who commands that kind of attention, if you're able to get a guy like what Trey young is doing now, he had 50 tonight, that is the type of lead guard or lead perimeter player. I want with Zion at some point in the future. And, and maybe Ingram can turn into that guy. He really hasn't shown much pull up uh pull up ability um he's been solid in the catch and shoot but again like you said there wasn't really an off season for him to work on those things and and honestly mac i believe makes an article uh makes a point in his article where like guys like ingram should spend the summer working on skills that they're already good at so do i want him to spend the whole summer working on these pull-up threes i'm not sure he'll be better with a tighter handle he'll be better when if he if he's learning to make better reads in the pick and roll um, I'm not sure, but I, I still think there is viability with, with Zion closing at the five. And I think what'll make that easier for us is Zion getting healthy, Zion getting in, in more shape and learning how to do things defensively, because there were moments in college where he was solely responsible for shutting everything down in the paint, just because of his activity and his mobility uh, in the backfield. I still think there is a ceiling. There's a, there is a world where Zion turns into that guy defensively and he makes some of those questions easier to answer. Yeah. I, I don't mean to sound like the old man here, but what I've, what I've learned about the NBA is that we're going to try to predict all of these things now. And whoever that guy is, is going to end up being something that's, completely out of left field, some mid first round pick that turns into a a Jimmy Butler gem or um, some free agent guy who's, you know, just taking a chance the way that Detroit did with Chauncey Billups that becomes a guy like it's going to be something out of nowhere, but my gut, I, I just, I don't see them being able to, to finish at the four and five, at least not in every matchup. I think it becomes a Spurs-like thing where, if you remember, to get through the Western Conference, they would play a lot of Tiago Splitter. And then when they got to Miami, Tiago Splitter was absolutely awful. And they played um, Boris Dio. Right. So I think it's one of those things where you're going to have to have like a center bullpen by committee type of thing. Um, or well, yeah, well, yeah, I guess my next question was going to be is, what kind of center would you want against the ADs of the world? 
I wouldn't want a center. I would want exactly what you're talking about. I'd want the three, four um, type of guy that encourages AD to go and post up while his four teammates just look at him. Yeah, I was going to um, say, that's, that was the AD thing. That was the Porzingis. That well, that's what they did with Kenrich. The, yeah. the first matchup they had, and they were like, all right, AD, go drop 40 on Kenrich. And he did. And that game was a game until LeBron decided he wanted to play in the fourth. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Give me 20% Kenrich or give me, you know, actually give me Kendrich, but 37% three-point shooter and not some terrible. If you could combine Josh Hart and Kenrich into one player. Yeah. Yeah. Basically that, yeah. If you just lengthen um, Kenrich out or lengthen Josh Hart out. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's still all of this is still a good problem to have. Like I still remember, I still remember sitting on the toilet that January morning and seeing the tweet <laughs> that I had missed the night before that Anthony Davis was not gonna resign with the Pelicans. I'm like, all right, that's it, franchise is over. I don't have to follow anymore. Could, uh, <laughs> you you were kind of at that conclusion when Boogie tore his Achilles. Because I think you were like, this This is it. This is what yeah. sets off the demise of the franchise. Yeah. I mean, that was – yeah, that was – because you knew AD wasn't staying, but you knew that they would – at least I thought that they were going to make every last-ditch effort to overpay Boogie and whatever. But, yeah. Um, and now here we are like, oh, look at us. We have two all-star caliber players maybe one future mvp should we give them the max you know how are we gonna find the <laughs> what are we gonna do with drew holiday <laughs> yeah like what are we're gonna have to overpay because these two guards look to be pretty good so it, yeah. it's problems to have um yeah I, i'd be curious I, I want people to read the article we're now going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor bet online bet online the fastest and easiest way to bet on all things sports March Madness, the Masters, and Major League Opening Day are right around the corner. Bet Online has you covered for all your latest news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Best part, when you sign up, you receive a 50% welcome bonus. The Waldo Fury rematch goes down this Saturday night, and we can't think of a better way to wager on the fight than doing it with actual free money. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. We signed up, super easy. If you're already into betting, it's a fantastic way to support this podcast. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, when you sign up at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. But honestly, I, if you guys don't mind, I have a question, a couple questions for you as I was writing this that I was kind of just talking to and, and mm-hmm. asking myself and I didn't really put in the piece and I'd be curious to get your thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So... Nikhil Alexander-Walker, I say that he's a little too much Sidney Dean, not enough Billy Hoyle right now. What do you think the odds are that two or three years from now we're in our group chats talking about Alexander-Walker the same way we do with Frank Jackson and go, (laughs) yeah, you know, nice, but if I could get a solid second for him or if he could be a a sweetener in this trade, I would do it. What do do you think of the (laughs) odds that we end up in a similar place? it's so funny because the trajectory uh, putting the injury for Frank Jackson aside, cause he really, his first year was a lot was lost, but the trajectory is so similar. I remember sitting in a bar in Detroit watching Frank Jackson's first summer league game and like saying, Oh my God, this guy 
we waited a year for him, but holy crap, look how good he is. And that's kind of exactly what happened with Frank, with Nikhil, except Nikhil actually took it into the preseason too and looked fantastic. And so I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's, uh, you know, super likely that that, that path is the same because I still, I'm very much out on Frank Jackson as an impact player. And I know he's still young, but like even off the bench, like I, I, I don't see his role yet as a uh, consistent rotation player in the NBA. And I feel like, I feel like Nikhil still has a good path to get there. I mean, and it's obviously super early. It's still his rookie year, but um, I, I think, I think he's got the right mentality. I mean, I, I think about when Schmidt posts all the, had been posting the drives per game and he, he's, he's attacking, he's relentless. And I think he's talented enough to carve out a, a more of a role than I see Frank Jackson ever really having. Yeah, I think with Nikhil, it's one, yes, he attacks. Two, he's capable of things that Frank simply isn't capable of. And and that's both from, I think, a passing standpoint, um, just ball skills, as well as on, on defense. I don't think I will trust Frank Jackson to ever get over a screen. And there have been times where Nikhil looks like he's unscreenable. If Nikhil, what, what, what makes Nikhil not good this season is just he has moments and long moments of just abject awful decision making whether that's taking a shot at the completely wrong time whether it's driving into four dudes and trying to pull something out of a bag that he doesn't have or or that's just making a pass and trying to do too much with it if he removes these moments of of just pure awfulness with Frank. It's not like, you know, he's being awful and actively hurting you. It's just like, he's just not very good at these things. And, and, you know, Frank will have his a couple boneheaded turnovers. Great. But that's not really been his, his major issues. Major issue is like, well, if you're not scoring, what are you giving me? Nikhil can give you things when he's not scoring, but he will also take away so much from you. And if you, if you remove the takeaway component, I think he has a place on this roster. And I think as he plays more minutes, as he gets more comfortable in the league, and as he, as he, I don't know if it's, it's he, the, the correct term is humbling himself because part of what makes Nikhil Nikhil is his arrogance and his, his, his cockiness and his, his mindset that I can, I can make these shots. I can make these passes. And that's what makes him his ceiling a, a little bit tantalizing, but when he when he's able to find the right balance of that aggression and that confidence and and eliminate those just terrible plays that he has i can see him being an impact player on the bench and and growing into someone um that can swing games for you yeah i i mean the only thing i would counter so you i mean it sounds like you guys basically answered the question if Nikhil will be better than Frank in his second or third year. I don't debate that. I just, I, Frank also had a clear path to minutes on the team. Like, let me ask you this. Let's say Killian Hayes is the number one guy on your board, on Trajan Langdon's board, whatever, when it's, it's our turn to pick next year, like head and, and shoulders above whoever's next. Do you not take Killian Hayes because you still believe in Alexander Walker. And if you do take Killian Hayes, like I think it, it could be possibly more of an opportunity 
thing lost for Nikhil to where he never really has the chance and there's other guys who are clearly better than him, which would be the reason we would say, let's just get rid of him for anything at this point. So first off, if they had the option to take Killian Hayes and they did not take Killian Hayes, I would be a very, very sad person, regardless of what that situation is. I'm that big of a fan of of Hayes coming into this draft. But if the question is, are you willing to move on from Nikhil given similar or better opportunities? I have no hesitation on moving on from Nikhil. If a trade was presented to me this summer where I had the ability to move Nikhil and that netted me a player that was had a lower ceiling than him, but was already ready to contribute night in, night out and played a position or a role of need for this team, I'd do it. I'd do it. And, and I wouldn't be too upset about it. Okay. The, the Hayes Hayes pick and roll by itself is just too much to pass up. <laughs> You'd have Hayes and Hayes and Williams and Williamson. It'd be, it'd be, and, and you could just have Ingram just being Ingram. But, in that line. But by the way, uh, the Kings are up by nine, by eight against the Grizzlies at halftime. Yeah. It's if anybody's, well, not like this is live. No. If when we get up the podcast, if you guys have a chance to watch it, it is the most up and down crazy game um, I've seen this year. It's it's a lot of fun. Morant's minus twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the the rookie of the year conversation. Is there, is there a guy on the Kings you would want to steal at all? Like, okay, let's let's take De'Aaron Fox off the table. Okay. <laughs> Let, is there a guy on the Kings you'd want in any capacity? You would, White Buddy Heel? Did he die too? I'm asking. Would you yeah. want Buddy on this team? Yeah, absolutely. I'd probably trade out like favors for Holmes. Holmes is a good pick. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would also trade Melly for Bialisa just to, if like they were robots, not human beings. Um, but I think Melly actually brings the right type of tone to the roster um but that would be another one but yeah favors for homes would be um one i would make okay okay back back to my questions the uh i also talked about here about the the jaw i would just be curious knowing everything that we know now what is the absolute most you would have given up to move from four to two giving everything we had gotten from the Lakers hall, everything that was also currently on the roster. Um, what's the absolute most you would have, would have given. Mason, you want to go? Uh, I need to think about it. I, that's, oh, that's tough. So, so let's I don't know if the conversation home. starts and begins with, so, well, let's start with the four pick. You give that up. No doubt. Okay. Let's, let's scratch more. that off the table. Um, so that's that's the four pick. That means no Jackson Hayes, Nikhil Alexander Walker. We have a pick that could probably net DD. Um, yeah. So no no Jackson Hayes, no Alexander Walker, no Solomon Hill dump. No Cleveland fake first round pick. That no Cleveland fake first round pick that will turn into seconds. So you you give up you give up that. Um, you have to find a way to move Lonzo, whether it's in that or to a third team for something else that Memphis would want. So you, you include Lonzo in that. 
the four and Lonzo. And it's like, well, is that enough to get it done at that time? No, I don't think yeah. so because I, I still know. I don't yeah. think that. Yeah. So, so then you have to figure out what Memphis's motivations are. Are they player motivated or are they pick motivated? Because I would probably give up all of the Lakers picks. Every, every single one of them. So for Lonzo, all the Lakers picks. All the Lakers picks and swaps. Um, and I think what, would, what I would want to do is find a way to keep Ingram. And, and then you're, are you asking, you know, I, th- I think that that would probably be my limit for Lonzo and, and all the Lakers picks. I don't think Memphis asks for Hart. Yeah, um, I think it's impossible to think to worry about what they would want and give out and how it would fit with their roster. I'm just saying from your but view, but I would be prepared to move Drew for additional assets to get the deal done that would allow me to fill out the team in a way I need to fill it out. But it sounds like Ingram's your deal breaker. You're not giving him up as part of the pack. Would you do Ingram for number? For, let's say Ingram and four for number two. That's it. You get to keep the Lakers picks. You probably move Lonzo and something else, whatever, but Ingram and four. Ooh, that is tough. I probably do it. I think from a strict value perspective, it's probably not a good move because – You, I think the answer to that question is, is not what four turns into, but what, like, is the peak of Ingram? How far is the peak of Ingram from the peak of Ja? And I think you can make a case that their peaks won't be that far. I think you can make that case, and I think that case would be rooted in the fact um, that Ja would be limited defensively in his ability to impact the game. And it's entirely possible that he never turns into uh, a fantastic shooter. He's just league average. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case and Ingram is what he is currently plus taking up a few notches, how, how far away are their ceilings? Mason, what's the absolute most you give up? Um, I'm probably not going to the, as far as Brandon Ingram, uh, I, I probably would the, the all the Lakers picks. I, th- I, I don't know if I go there. I think I do just because the, even the best case scenario for the Lakers picks is that you get a, you have the right to take a player who's as close to or as good as Ja and that's, I mean, that's that's essentially what the Pelicans are betting on. There is that one of those picks will cash big time, and so if you can trade all that for a guy who clearly is going to cash in this in this uh, form of John Morant, then you do it. Um, as far as what more than that, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm uh, goodbye Alonzo because he becomes irrelevant um, with Jaw on the roster with Zion. Um, yeah, I mean, and I. I I give up other stuff around whatever whatever else around the edges I needed to make that make, get that deal done. I do it. 
So um, here's, I guess here's an uh, interesting caveat because if you asked me in the summer what would happen, I would not have been that high on Ingram and I'd be more yep. willing to move him. But at the same time, I also wasn't that high on Ja. So it's impossible to disentangle yep. this, this retroactive effect of knowing how good both of them currently are. Because mm-hmm. I think I said I would take Ja at four. I had, I was like, all right, I'll probably take Culver at two and I'd be fine with RJ at three. And, and I saw Ja as a player that would take two or three years to maybe make an impact. And I've been com- completely wrong on that completely wrong and and obviously i was wrong on ingram as well but so it's if you ask me in the summer and you're like oh you want to take four and ingram for two i'd be willing to move ingram but i'd probably tell you like oh well jazz probably not that good yeah 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 i it's an it's an interesting one because like i i think i would make ingram part of the trade. I think the most I would give up, I think I would give up basically everything the Lakers gave us. I would want to hold on to Hart and I'd want to hold on to that 24, 25 pick. Um, and it'd be, I, I don't know if I kept getting pushed, if I would give up one or both of those things. But um, yeah, I, I think the fit, I think the timeline is better of jaw and Zion as far as, coming in at the same exact time. There's no questions of whose team it is. Not like there's going to be much, much longer. I think you also buy yourself three more years before you have to pay. I think you also have to pay less people. Um, You're talking about one max for, um, from job versus what you're going to have to pay Ingram and ball. And then eventually if these picks pan out, if the picks don't pan out, then they're a wash. So I think I would give up pretty much everything, but I'd really love to hold on to Josh Hart and, uh, and yeah, that, that latest Lakers pick, but it was just something that, you know. Would you give up Frank Jackson though? Ah, I don't know. That would be, that would be the tough one. That (laughs) along with that fake Cleveland first rounder. Um, All right. Last one, last one that I got for you guys. So I went, on my old man yells at a cloud with the, the three point line. I talked to you guys a bit about it in the chat. That would be the thing that I would change beyond anything else. If you gave me the ability to, to make one rule change, to make one modification to the league. So that was mine and people could read my proposal in the article. If you guys could change one thing about the NBA could be a CBA rule. I know Kevin O'Connor and Bill Simmons had a really bad conversation about what they think the new, what the trade rules should be. And anytime Bill Simmons does math, it's, it's laughable, but that was, that was kind of there. So it could be a CBA thing. It could be a court change. It could be um, block charge, whatever. What one rule would you change if you could change anything in the league? Mason, do you have one? The, uh, um, I would want to think more about this, but the one that comes to mind for me that I, I read some, I, I read this idea somewhere, so it's not an original thought of my own, but the, uh, the, around the inside the cylinder, 
rule uh, as far as you, you can't, you know, when the ball's above the, above the rim, you can't touch it. I think I, I would love to get rid of that rule. The FIBA, yeah. You want FIBA goaltending yeah. rules? Yeah. Okay. That would be, that'd be fun. But that's, I mean, that's, that's, a, uh, that's not a terribly material impact on the game, I don't think. Not nearly as much as a three-point change would be, but that's, that's one of voice or I've thought about it would be fun to take away. So what, so what do you like about you think it makes it more fun or you think there's just not that arbitrariness of, of inch off versus right out? Like what is it about it that, that you think would improve the game a lot? Oh, I don't know. If, I think it'd be more fun. I, I, don't, I don't know about – I don't think it has, like I said, the, the drastic improvement on the on, – or change the game, but I think, it would, I, I, think it's, I think it's more fun. Okay. Okay. I am also going to steal an idea. This idea is Jason, Jason's idea, uh, Jason Commies. And I'm probably not going to do as good of a job of articulating it, but it's a CBA, it's a CBA change. And it is a change to how max contracts work. And it's a change to basically how the supermax works. And essentially, in a nutshell, you create a supermax that is a certain percentage over the cap. But let's say like, you know, it's worth $50 million total per year. But on your cap, it only goes in as a regular max. And the difference is league subsidized. And so every team gets that slot. It's use it or lose it. And it will create parity because, again, you can give it to any player. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And you can have – and you can choose every year who to put that asterisk on. So if I want to make this year, you know, I have the slot. I'm not using it. I want to give it to Drew Holiday. Well, then he's he's getting it for – for this year. Um, and then, you know, if, if, if next year that, that's not what I want, I can reassign it to an, another player. I don't think I'm articulating it really well. I don't think that's, that's the full concept of it. I'll have to write it out or have him write it out. But the general thought is you have 30 slots that are subsidized by the league and, and each team is incentivized to use it on someone because again you, you lose it if you don't and and there obviously be stipulations as like you know if, if a player gets hurt then you can take the asterisk off and they become a regular mask uh max type person um and you can assign it to someone else but he had a pretty interesting um and well thought out rule on how these maxes would work so i would i would want to play around with something like that or just make max contracts um, and super max is the portion above the cap, not count towards your cap. They would just be amounts that are paid. It's kind of like how Ashik's contract worked, where he counted for eight million, but you know you're paying him sixteen million. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely. I mean, I've always thought there should just be an unlimited slot um, that every team had. That would be the same thing. That would be with parody another one i always liked was i thought okc really got screwed because they were such good drafters i would love if like that something like that but only for guys that you drafted so like you didn't get penalized because you drafted four guys that were all awesome and worth the max like somehow 
they would get the max contracts that they deserve, but only like 75 or 80% of it would count against the luxury tax. So when Golden State has to pay Steph Curry and Clay and Harrison Barnes and Draymond, like they're not automatically a tax team just because they happen to draft so well. Like I, I think you should also be for drafting well. Interesting because people would riot if Golden State didn't have those um, restrictions that that allowed them to um, essentially, you know, like they're they're they made a lot of moves they made this season because they didn't want to be deep in in repeater tax, yeah. and so you wonder how long dynasties, if that was the case, and you you luck into an OKC or you you are Golden State Warriors, how long do those teams remain in power, and are you kind of enabling these teams to become these these insanely long dynasties i, I mean draft that well shouldn't you have the right to be like <laughs> we just hate it because it's not our team but like if you do that good of a job like you should <laughs> you should be uh, you know rewarded as the best of 30 because you are um like i i hate this situation like i'm That's a raven fan and i think it sucks that kansas city is gonna have to pay Mahomes 40 50 million dollars and you know take out from the rest of the team like you're basically like the teams that we should be penalizing are the teams that do a crappy job of of drafting and evaluating players not just giving them a basically a tax break so I don't know. Well, I mean, aren't aren't teams like the Knicks penalizing themselves for that? Haven't teams like the <laughs> the Wolves and the Kings penalized themselves for years and years because of that? It's like a self penalty, right? Yeah, I, I think parity would be almost impossible. But we're talking about two teams that wouldn't have been in big markets, you know, dominating. So I don't know, but yeah, I was uh, again. I'm curious. What What do you guys think about my three point? If If it was either leave the three point line and the court exactly the way it is for the next ten years, or you got to take Mike's proposal. Um, there's no third option. Which one would you do? I don't have a problem with the three-point line. <laughs> I really don't. And, you know, there's probably going to be teams like the Rockets that are really, truly going to test the limits of how much I don't have a problem with it. But to me, I think there will always be situations where the league will balance itself out in a way like, you know, the Pelicans have a Zion. And, and that guy is not going to take all these threes. You may need other guys that take all these threes, but they're still going to get a ton of points in the paint and, and they'll, I guess, quote unquote, the old fashioned way. And I think a lot of what teams are trying to do by taking a lot of threes is to actually open up their looks closer to the rim. And so I, I don't think it's a displeasing experience to watch team team shoot a bunch of threes. I think there is a certain amount of excitement in the sense that if a team is down 20, they can they have a feasible chance of coming back and it can happen in an instant if, if things are right. And so I'm okay with it. I think it's unless, you know, players like the skill level over the next 10 years rises so high that, the league average is around 40%. I don't think I'll have a problem with it. I, I, I know you said it's, it's your proposal or the current way, but I, I, 
I, I don't have a problem with pushing the three-point line back a little bit. I don't really think we need the the reduction in the size of the paint. Uh, I, I think I think just widening the court and and, and uh, pushing the three-point line back a little bit will create um, just it, it'll, it'll, I think it'll create more. Um, uh, I, I'm struggling to think of the right word. Just like uh, improv, improvisation, I guess is maybe the best way to say it um, within the flow of the offense. That even even more than we have. Now, um, I, I don't know if we need that old school post game necessarily back in the fold. I just like you realize we'll never see another. So imagine, I don't know, maybe it's just because I grew up on it and it was still to this day my favorite player to watch. My favorite player to watch ever is Akeem Olajuwon. Like, I what he did to David Robinson in the playoffs and that footwork and the post, we will never ever see that again because the game is basically not rewarding. I mean, we saw Carlisle laugh, you know, at reporters with basically suggesting Porzingis go in the post. He said himself, it's just not a play that makes sense. And I know Porzingis isn't a good post player, but my point is nobody will be taught that moving forward anymore because the game doesn't reward it. Like we're losing an entire group of a, a type of player. Um, and I don't know. I like that type of player. I just watched randomly on NBA TV was um, Charlotte Hornets first, the Knicks in the playoffs with Lonzo and Patrick Ewing going back and forth, man, that was fun. Like Lonzo baseline spinning on Ewing and dunking. Like that was so much fun to watch. And we just completely basically abolished those players from the league and I yeah I agree there's still quote-unquote points in the paint but they come from Tony Parker they come from Trey Young like it's we've just gotten rid of a total type of player and now it's just all the same kind of guys I I just I I, see I I agree that we've we've gotten rid of the traditional back-to-basket big but I'm not sure I'm with it when it comes to the same types of guys because you know we when when I watch Milwaukee and I watch the thing Giannis things Giannis does, it's it's I have no comparison for it, you know, and, and it's absolutely absurd what he's doing. And part of what he's doing so successful is because they take so many threes. And so their system, you don't typically associate Milwaukee being with, with being one of the best shooting teams, but but they are, and, and that's what their system um calls for. And it allows Giannis to be Giannis. I had a ton of fun watching the Warriors do what they did before they got Kevin Durant to two other teams and the constant chess match that defenses are faced with against against when they run into offenses like that uh, fascinates me because I'm my favorite part of the game is is the adjustments and the ways the defense has to work to shrink the floor and the sacrifices and trade-offs they need to make to allow for that to happen. I, I love watching that. And I don't think it's gotten to a point where the defense is in this no win position. And if they, if they are too aggressive in, in helping off an area, they're just going to repeatedly get burned. I think the closest you got to that was with when Kevin Durant was on, on the Warriors. And even then the Rockets were able to push them to seven and Chris Paul got hurt. And, and I loved watching that series. It was, it was so fascinating to me from, just the battles within the battles that that happened there 
Yeah, I mean, in any contest, there's always going to be battles. There's, I just, I don't see the level of variety, and I've never seen a sport go like this. Like in the piece, I talk about an NFL future where teams. I, I looked it up, and pe- teams throw about an average of three point four, what we would call bombs, per game. And it would be the equivalent if in 20 or 30 years teams were throwing 40 to 45 a game. If they just, if there was a Daryl Morey of the NFL that just decided, you know what, why don't we just throw four bombs on first, second, third, and fourth down, we're likely to complete one and or get a pass interference. Worst case scenario, it's intercepted, and that's the equivalent of a punt anyway, which we're likely to do on 70% of – like, that just sounds crazy – but I'm telling you, like, this would have been as crazy if you would have told the people in 1993. It's just such a completely different game. And it could keep going more this way where it's just all one through five. You know what the defense is? We all just switch. And I, I don't know. I, I've just never seen a sport change this much um, since golf. And golf, what they did is they lengthened all the major courses to adjust for longer hitters and and technology. And I'm just shocked that the NBA has allowed the game to change this much in a short span and really hasn't done it. Well, here's my question is if you take a modern coach with all the knowledge and principles of a modern offense and you transplant him back to the nineties and, um, I, is is the hand checking rule, but outside of that, you know, you, you generated a system where where it functions like a modern pace and space offense. Does that team do better against the '90s teams? They couldn't. I in the '90s, you couldn't find a guy who could shoot off the dribble. Like as good as Reggie Miller was, the percentage of times that he you know, took some, you know, took a couple dribbles and shot the three was infinitesimal. I, I, I was a huge, he never dribbled before he shot. Like you just didn't have the players. Right. The um, skill, the skill wasn't there or wasn't called right. upon to be there. Exactly. You know, it's possible that if those same shooters grew up in an environment where it called up for that, they, they could have picked up those skills, but that just wasn't a necessity. Right. And now the skills have changed and I have no issue with James Harden and the guards taking a bunch of threes, what I think sucks is that Carl Anthony Towns, Joel Embiid, guys like that are behind the three-point line. If you move the three-point line back and shrink the lane, the math again will say that Embiid should be on the low or mid block every single possession, and I think that makes the game better. So it wouldn't be the guards that would be affected. That skill's already there. It's yeah, Lillard is still bombing from 30. Lonzo's <laughs> right. still bombing from three. <laughs> yeah, but Zion wouldn't be taking any, and I'd be more than happy. And there wouldn't be talk of him eventually becoming a three. There was never talk. Alonzo Mourning was a great mid-range shooter. There was never talk of him eventually being a three-point threat. I mean, look and at Kevin Garnett. David, and David, there was no was Kevin David Garnett West. lived. Yeah, David West, of course. But, you know, KG, he was a fantastic mid-range shooter. He lived in that long two, that that cursed long two spot. 
Yeah, Horace Grant was the guy that I grew up watching just killing mid-range jumpers. So anyway, I just want a little bit. That would be the number one thing um, that I would change. Number two for me would be I hate charges. Like, I can't imagine that when they started the rules of basketball, there was ever this thought of sliding in front of a guy right before <laughs> he takes to the air or right before shooting a shot to get these stupid charges. Like, a charge was meant for, like, if you've ever seen the movie Grease, where he's just pushing people out of the way, like, bowling through people. That's what a charge was meant. I hate now if I could just run in front of a guy who's going full speed a half a second before he gets there and stand still. That's a char- I absolutely hate that. I agree. Get, get rid of the charge. It's just, I feel like it's, you're more likely to get someone injured. Yeah, doing that then it's not, it's not i don't even think it's a real basketball play i, I don't but i won't lie I, I did enjoy kyle lowry do kyle lowry things in the all-star game <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that added its own flavor i know people were very upset about it like why is he taking charges in an all-star game but i, I thought it was hilarious yep and this has been your uh, old man yelling at a cloud brought to you by untucked is that this week or no? <laughs> That's I mean, nice you can shout out Untucked, but uh, it's it's BetOnline.ag. <laughs> well, Untucked is good anyway. I, uh, I actually buy the product, so good for them. Cool. Well, this King has been Cup a great. 13. Yeah, it's been a great <laughs> pod. Thanks, thanks for listening, guys. What's up, everybody? I'm Bladen. I'm Matt. And I'm Theo. And we are Stay Hot, the only podcast that gives you the hottest analysis and takes on the NFL and NBA all year round. I know that there's a lot of losers and haters out there who don't think three sports TikTokers can hang for a full pod, but, you know, we're going to prove them all wrong. We're about to dive deep into the NFL draft and are already hitting the NBA playoffs. So watch Stay Hot on YouTube or listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.